So we've been investigating the experience of freedom and uh, maybe boldly feeling like it's relevant given that we have, we're interested in this path and the path is about freedom or release. So this means that it that we have permission to to um, focus or see it as something relevant, you know, not something later, not something even to just aspire to, but something to wake up to, something really almost to expect. It's like that old phrase goes, I think it's from one of the Greeks, what's not sought is not found. If we want to find something, we have to look for it. If we have some intuitive sense that freedom is available, then that intuitive sense actually shapes how we work with our mind. So what, you know, what is the experience of freedom? The Buddha said, enraptured with lust, enraged with anger, blinded by delusion, overwhelmed with mind ensnared. Man aims at his own ruin, at the ruin of others, at the ruin of both, and he experiences mental pain and grief. But if lust, anger, and delusion are given up, man aims neither at his own ruin, nor the ruin of others, nor the ruin of both. And he experiences no mental pain and grief. Thus is Nibbana visible in this life, immediate, inviting, attractive, and comprehensible to the wise. So first and foremost, you know, freedom is the cessation of what's hot. Like in the Dhammapada, no fire like lust, no grasping like hate, no snare like delusion. So freedom is the cessation of greed, all the forces of greed in the mind and hatred, aversion, delusion, fear. This makes it much more immediate, I think, the experience of freedom. Not something otherworldly. So we've been looking at the Four Noble Truths, and in particular, the Second Noble Truth. And you remember probably that the Buddha lays out in his first Dharma talk 12 insights that go with the Four Noble Truths, these four practices or four investigations. And so um, think about them as something we awaken to not something we do, these 12 things. So we awaken that there is dukkha. And ironically, maybe we're so busy negotiating with dukkha, denying it, distracting ourselves from it, that it's actually an insight when we see 
whoa, at times life is heavy, or maybe this moment is heavy. This is relevant. So it's not just to notice that the mind is heavy, but to have the insight that the heaviness, the difficulty, is actually relevant. The fact that my mind is caught and feels burdened, this is relevant. And then that it has been understood, that we've understood the first basic, not easy, but basic movement in the path, which is to open, to accept, to welcome what's difficult. Dukkha has been understood. It has a cause. This is the first insight in the second noble truth. It has a cause. This cause should be abandoned. The cause has been abandoned. And again, like I mentioned last night, and I want to talk about a little bit more tonight, sharing some of what Ajahn Sumedho says, Dukkha has a cause. This cause should be abandoned. This cause has been abandoned. Just because this cause should be abandoned isn't the same as being the somebody who abandons the cause or making, having desire to abandon desire, having desire to abandon what's bad and yucky. So even the words letting go can be confusing. So some people use letting be. But letting go happens. Uh, heaviness does, in fact, drop from the mind. As I mentioned that phrase last night, suffering is, but no sufferer can be found from the, the Sudhimagga, the Path of Purification, this manual written hundreds of years after the time of the Buddha. So the Buddha says that the cause of suffering is attachment to desire. The mind is confused by desire. And we talked about, at the, on the first night, the three types of desire that confuse us. The desire for sense experiences, sensuality, the desire to become, or sometimes translated as the desire for existence and the desire for non-existence, or not becoming, getting rid of. Here's some of uh, what Ajahn Sumedho says, really grounding it in our experience here. We can see all three kinds of desire in our everyday life. If you're bored, you, see, you seek something to eat, or you watch television, drink something, or find somebody to talk to. These are all desires for pleasure through the senses. But after a while, you become bored with sensory pleasure. So maybe you dedicate your life to becoming a famous writer, or a good cook, or an enlightened being. These are all the desire to become. When you're tired of sensory pleasures and becoming somebody, you, might, you want to just annihilate yourself. Sleeping a lot is a kind of indulgence in this uh, attachment to non-becoming or non-existence, the desire to get rid of, the desire for oblivion. But as soon as you wake up, you have to start becoming something or seeking some kind of sensory pleasure again. 
So you go to eat something, smoke something, drink something, watch something, read something, think about something, until you get so worn out with it all that you go and annihilate yourself again. <coughs> and you have an obsession or a fear or anger, and you have the desire to get rid of it, don't you? <coughs> I have a bad temper. I want to get rid of it. Whenever you feel anger, jealousy, fear, and so forth arise in you, you try to annihilate them. That's also this desire for extinction, the desire to get rid of some kind of mental condition that you don't like. These three kinds of desires desire are beginning conditions for suffering. The second noble truth tells us that attachment to desire is the origin of dukkha. When we are awake and mindful and we see the beginning of suffering, there we will see there we will see our attachment to desire. But all these three kinds of desire have a beginning. They arise and consequently are not permanent eternal qualities of mind. They are not ultimate reality. And in a funny sort of way, over and over again, when we feel desire, instead of just letting it move, instead of allowing it to be a natural condition that arises and ceases, we take it as some kind of ultimate reality. Mark is speaking to Mark, and he knows what he wants or knows what he doesn't want. So it's a worthy investigation. I gave that handout on the first night about investigating the desire for sensory experience and the desire to become and the desire to get rid of. And to practice like were those common, you know, the common sense desires and the common becoming desires and the common wanting to get rid of desires. And to practice uh, intentionally bringing them up in the mind. You know, like my desire maybe to be uh, free of a to-do list or my desire to have free time. And to see the desire without attachment, like just to experiment. The, I, I know what my desires for sense experiences are and becoming and to get rid of because they visit so often. We're probably all pretty familiar with at least a handful of desire so we can practice we can invite it in and we can practice well what does this feel like look like without attachment and just reflect now as I'm talking let me bring a desire to mind what is desire without attachment do we know that experience of desire without attachment So desire, like so many things in our experience, maybe almost everything in our experience, desire has a very obvious characteristic, which is it moves. It arises, it ceases. And this is what we're not in the habit of seeing and allowing to be. 
So when we practice bringing up one of our common desires to become something, somebody, to get rid of something, to get rid of the pain in my body, to get rid of this feeling of being cold, to, be, to get rid of this feeling of being a bad meditator. We bring one of them up and we just allow it to arise and to move, to do its thing, to express itself, to let desire express itself. Our past, you know, in the past, we've, of course, identified as the desire arose in the mind, we have identified with it. And we've acted out this intention, one way or another, we've acted out some intention about that desire. So we feel, see the desire moving, we take it personally, and then we do something about it. Sometimes it's very subtle. All we do is tighten up a little, mentally or physically. Sometimes we take some action. Sometimes we think about it, proliferate around it, obsess. But we do something about it. That doing something about it always arises because of the attachment or identification. And whenever we act out of that attachment or identification, we suffer and set emotion suffering. And it just reinforces, it makes the desire more believable as me. That's my desire. This is what I want. I need this to be happy. If I have this, if I get rid of this, I'm going to feel a lot better. But the interesting thing is, of course, um, we've acted on our desires quite a bit. We've even been able to gratify some of these desires. But the desiring doesn't hasn't ceased for any of us, I'm guessing. So we have this incentive to practice another way. And the whole form of meditation, whether walking or sitting or even daily life practice, mindfulness practice, it's really set up to notice desire, to notice these different forces in the mind, conditioned forces in the mind, and to notice them as natural arisings, things that arise and cease. And then to notice that it does, in fact, cease without me having to intend anything about it or to take it personally. Like, we could all do a little experiment with truth right now. We could bring to mind some desire that's been visiting us lately and intentionally think it or feel it and feel that force, that uh, the force of attachment, like the compulsion to do something about that desire, to act on it in some way. And we're there, we're mindful, we're opening, allowing the whole thing to express itself. And if we're patient enough, we'll see over and over and over again that desire and the attachment to desire ceases without any need for somebody to try to gratify it, to do something about it, even to judge it as bad. 
which is just another way of reinforcing it to see that desire as dangerous or bad. I was noticing this just as I was preparing the talk tonight, and uh, I think it was I was uh, craving uh, being done with retreat. <laughs> Not that I don't love you guys, but <laughs> and just having some more space in my life, freedom to do what I want. Right? That's that's the most seductive thing. You know, we really can believe in that one. If I only had freedom to do what I want. Think about times when you actually had a lot of freedom to do what you want and how much trouble and misery we create for ourselves <laughs> when we can do what we want. You know, we start eating what we want and watching what we want and reading what we want and avoiding what we want. It's, I don't know about you, but maybe I'm just not so disciplined. <laughs> But, I mean, do you find your desires trustworthy in the sense that they actually deliver happiness when you gratify them? So anyway, I was noticing that, that desire to be done and to be free of this, you know, so it's both sort of a desire to become done or a desire to get rid of this and all the sense experiences I might imagine arising when I can, when I'm free of this. But I realized uh, right then and there, it wasn't that difficult when I was aware of the desire. It's difficult when I'm not awake or aware of the desire. But as soon as I became aware that there was this desire, you know, now that the retreat is getting closer to being over, it was more alive. I noticed it. The nice thing about preparing Dharma talks is the reinforcement, the information is close. So I, I noticed, I looked at that desire, and when I was mindful of the desire, it ceased. I noticed that it ceased. I didn't have to actually believe it or proliferate, like imagine what that will be like when it's over and the New Year's Eve program is over. <laughs> but it's so amazing to see that. And I, I'm sure you notice when you, if, you do, if you're doing it now, if you did it recently, it's like we don't believe it's that easy. We don't believe that letting desire cease is the path. That letting desires move naturally, arise and cease, and seeing the cessation of the desire without gratification, without doing anything about it, without being against it or for it, but just let it, allowing it to be a natural movement of the mind. It just seems like this is too easy of a way to deal with desire, with craving. Now, interestingly, when we notice desire, it arises and it ceases. We notice it arises and it ceases. And we notice that when, even when attachment comes, it still arises and ceases, as long as we're aware that attachment is attachment or the identification is identification. It in no way means we're not going to 
uh, act on that desire. We're just not going to act on that desire because of the attachment, because we understand that the attachment isn't self. It's just something that's coming and going. It's a condition to rising. It's part of this, like we talked about last night, this amazing, beautiful, wild display of dependent co-arising, this sort of web of conditionality that we live with. And part of that are these feelings we have, the feeling of attachment, the feeling of love, all of the, the, the experience of wisdom. All of these things are arising and ceasing. You know, we're wise in one moment and we're attached and we're fearful in another moment. But when we see in that coming and going and we're not confused by it, then we don't have to, we're not driven to act on the fear or on the attachment. But it doesn't mean we're not going to do something in the next moment. Because there might be some beautiful flowering, some beautiful intention, wholesome intention, out of love or compassion that makes that action make sense or makes that desire make sense. Like I, I bet you've noticed this maybe this last week just with the emphasis on looking at craving or maybe just other times spontaneously where you had a desire for something and there was strong attachment and with practice recognizing the desire, recognizing the attachment, the tendency to identify, to take the desire personally, have a personal, the desire has a personal charge, but seeing that with some clarity, but then, then the desire um, is still there, but now it has a, a different kind of flavor, a different kind of um, force, maybe you know, and it's, it can be tricky, but all of a sudden it feels uh, like this is what needs to be done. Like the whole universe of the mind and body is going to do it. But not because we're attached, because it feels good to do or feels right to do. So the action isn't as relevant as the motivation to do the action. I mean, this is something we've heard many times probably in our studies and our own reflection. You know, what matters is the motivation. So in one moment, we could be motivated by greed or fear or delusion. But in the next moment, we could be motivated to do the same thing with love. And a lot of times, uh, I notice, I, I'm guessing this is relatively common, where I have a sense this is the right thing to do, but I don't have the right motivation, you know? And it's like we're in this holding zone, waiting to find the right intention to ride into that action, to take into that action. But we're, we're waiting for other less wholesome intentions, motivations to cease in the mind, which they will, if we don't identify with them. If we don't take them personally, they'll cease. And other motivations might arise that um, have an expansive or a liberating flavor to them. And those are fine to let, um, let uh, you know, it's not so much that we identify with them, but we it's sort of like the whole system happily participates and engages. 
In fact, I think this is a, a really potent place to investigate um, like that whole movement into action. I think actually there was a, a Sayadaw in Burma, I'm forgetting the person's name now, a well-known teacher back in the 1900s whose basic approach to practice was to sit still and to notice different motivations to move. And I remember some of you know Shinzen Yang, but he once mentioned in one of his retreats, I don't know if I have the story exactly right, but he had a friend in LA. He might have been a Japanese uh, man, uh, possibly ordained as a Zen monk, I'm not sure. But anyway, his practice was to sit until somebody asked him to do something and then to do it. Do you know this story? Gail? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Gail spent a number of years um, working with Shinzen and his Dharma organization in LA. But anyway, it's, it's sort of uh, an interesting approach that we can um, work with in life, like to sit here feeling the movement of desire and just letting desire move and noticing the different, um, you know, what arises with the desire. Like the sense of self that maybe a strong sense of self arises with this desire. So it's not so much that that action is bad, but the view associated with the, that action, right now, we don't want to reinforce. It's heavy. I mean, that's what wisdom tells us. It tells us, oh, this is heavy and it leads to heaviness. It's a, a contracted state, a constricted state. But we're just, awareness is just hanging out there. And it's not over, right? Because desires are constantly arising. Sometimes the same desire, sometimes a slightly different desire. But always different um, motivations or different views. And in fact, just the awareness, you know, one of the things about being mindful, being open, in a, in a funny way, the mind is embarrassed about uh, manifesting narrow points of view, self-centered points of view. It's like they don't, doesn't uh, really make sense. So the more, more radically present we are with the movement of desire, the more likely we're going to see um, motivations that allow us to participate and engage in the world. And this is often our fear is that if we're really mindful of attachment to desire, we're not going to end up doing anything because there's always attachment to desire. But I don't know if we've actually seen that as, as true. Is there, does there always have to be attachment to desire? And so we can use this as a, a dharma reflection, a dharma reflection, you know, what is desire without attachment, without identification? One of the things I noticed too tonight as I was preparing for the talk, I put my notes down for a while and I just sat in my office and, uh, and I saw something really clearly that is, is often there but I hadn't seen so clearly recently and it was really interesting. So there I was, you know, I composed myself and my posture and and then I noticed this desire in my mind. <laughs> Again, it's so interesting when <laughs> you're working with this material, then it, 
the nice thing about hearing a talk or reading something or discussing Dhamma with your friends is then it's more likely to illuminate our experience. And that's what happened for me an hour ago or so. So there I was sitting, I composed myself, and I noticed this desire. You know, I didn't have a lot of time. I had like 15 minutes or so. Like, okay, I'm going to really, I'm going to really do it. You know, and I just, in a good way, I felt sort of inspired and like, uh, okay, I'm going to really, um, really see Dhamma, really open to Dhamma. And, uh, but, but just, just the uh, mind seeing that desire queer, clearly, of course, first and foremost, that was Dhamma. That was seeing Dhamma, like just seeing desire as desire in the mind. But just how skillful it was not to be confused by that desire. Because what I noticed in that moment, which just, you know, like uh, insights are, kind of ringing truths, which, oh, this is how I always get off on the wrong foot in my meditation. <laughs> you know, because, there, because when I'm identified with that desire, then immediately I become the... You know, I like this image of the Boy Scout, you know, like the one who's going to do it and do it right, finally. You know, and I, and I have this sort of irrepressible optimism, but it's not helpful, you know, because it's about doing. It's about getting the job done, which is exactly gets in the way of getting the job done. It's that identification, and you can see how it sets up hell. Because then when it doesn't get done, who's to blame? Well, the person that got identified with that desire is the person to blame. That's me. And then the heart, the mind, it's all compacted, contracted. Everything feels heavy, tight. So it was just really interesting to see <laughs> desire like that. And, uh, and just to be reminded, you know, it... This is a very challenging practice because all of our ordinary resources don't work. All of our ordinary approaches to life don't work. That's why the word practice is so relevant. And even when we use words like relaxing, we just relax. You know, even all of those things get turned into doing. So I'll read a little bit from Ajahn Sumedho and maybe a few other things just to uh, help illuminate letting go. Because remember, the three insights the Buddha um, explains we, that will arise as we work with the second noble truth. Once we recognize dukkha, realize this is relevant, and then really understood it, meaning really let it in relaxed with it, seen it clearly. Then immediately the insight, it has a cause. Right? This is, again, that amazing uh, uh, ongoing developing insight into dependent co-arising. Nothing is static. Nothing exists as itself or as, its, you know, as an independent entity. Everything is in this conditional relationship with everything else. So as soon as we understand dukkha, by definition, opening completely in a moment of Dhamma, the way it is, we see conditionality. That's what, 
Dhamma is dependent origination. It is this conditionality, this web, this, this great web of things unfolding. So we see how craving, how dukkha unfolds. And it has a cause. That's an insight. Oh, it's not because I'm bad. It's, it's a natural conditional process. And seeing that it has a cause, it just becomes apparent to the mind, obvious to the mind. Well, this should be abandoned. This cause should be abandoned. And seeing that is the natural cause for the letting go. Nobody lets go. Letting go happens. So Ajahn Sumedho says, this practice of Dhamma is not one of hating oneself for having such thoughts, but really seeing that these are conditioned into the mind. They are impermanent. Desire is not what we are, but it is the way we tend to react out of ignorance when we have not understood the Four Noble Truths in their three aspects. We tend to react like that to everything. These are normal reactions due to ignorance. So I'm skipping about here. Usually we equate suffering with feeling, like an unpleasant feeling. But feeling is not suffering. It is the grasping of desire that is suffering. Desire does not cause suffering. The cause of suffering is the grasping of desire. This statement is for reflection and contemplation in terms of your individual experience. Right, because feeling, pleasant feeling, unpleasant feeling, it also is just a natural movement in the mind. And that's another thing to play with in practice. See that feeling is a movement. Like when you hit your, you know, stub your toe or bang your head or step out into the cold and there's the sense contact and the not liking of it and you'll see, if you really are just mindful, you see that the feeling is a movement. It arises and it ceases, and we can experience it as a movement, and if we experience it fully with mindfulness, then we're, it doesn't lead to another arising and ceasing, you know, that proliferation like hating it, wanting to move out of Minnesota, you know, or whatever, hoping for global warming. So Minnesota becomes a paradise. So the interesting thing around feeling, and the Buddha makes this point in his teaching on dependent co-arising, that when there is this movement of feeling, which of course happens inevitably when there's contact, then it's just a question, does the mind, is the mind creating, constructing some friction, attempting in some almost magical way to resist, to, to create some resistance or friction around the feeling, as if to stop it. We want to stop the painful sensations. We also, ironically, want to stop the pleasant sensations. So even though pleasant and unpleasant seem worlds apart, the mind is simple, it just has one response, which is to tighten, so to speak, or to create friction. And that's what turns feeling into suffering, into craving, grasping, becoming, birth and death, suffering. So the continuation of this 
chain of existence, this sort of movement of existence. Existence is also a movement, of course. Everything in the conditioned realm is characterized by movement. It's all movement. And the mind, through conception, through thinking, can manufacture, construct the experience of friction, of suffering, in a world that is essential, essentially just movement. But the mind has to do that. The mind has to construct something in order for there to be an experience of dukkha, of suffering, of stress, heaviness. So a little bit more I'll read. When you really see the origin of suffering, you realize that the problem is the grasping of desire, not the desire itself. Grasping means being deluded by it thinking it's really me or mine. These desires are me, and there is something wrong with me for having them. Or I don't like the way I am now, and I have to become something else. Or I have to get rid of something before I can become what I want to be. All of this is desire or attachment to desire. So you listen to it with bare attention, not saying it's good or bad, but merely recognizing it for what it is. If we contemplate desires and listen to them, we are actually no longer attaching to them. We are just allowing them to be the way they are. Then they come, then we come to the realization that the origin of suffering desire can be laid aside and let go of. So letting go is an organic thing that happens conditionally. So if we want to let go of something, all we have to do, like, what is the cause for letting go? Letting go of attachment to desire. The cause for letting go is seeing things as they are. The cause for attachment and suffering is not seeing things as they are. So the real task is, are we willing are we capable of seeing desire for what it is, a natural movement in the mind? So craving depends on not seeing things clearly. So this is such a you know, different view, of course. As I mentioned earlier, <clears throat> it's so easy, and this is so pervasive. I see this arising in my mind all the time. At least a few times every day, I see this in living color. And so, and I, you know, a lot of times I haven't been confused by it. Of course, a lot of times I'm still at least to some degree confused, sometimes very confused, by some version of the thought. Uh, basically, the mind manufacturing some utopia and assuming that would be the ticket. Some living someplace, having something happen, even something as mundane of just having, just cleaning out my basement and getting my basement organized, that that I imagine a kind of happiness would arise with that. So that's the freedom 
we imagine we'll get when we get what we want or get rid of what we don't want or become who we want to become. So we have to respect how intoxicating that kind of freedom is. And we have to actively investigate it because it's not going to go away. There's real work and practice because that groove is dug deep in the mind. And the mind is going to keep flowing, if not with the same idea. See, the groove isn't about just cleaning up my basement. The groove is, if only then. That's the groove. And uh, because that groove, that groove is so deep and uh, well-greased, we have to actively uh, force ourselves, force the mind. It's an act of volition to pay attention. Because otherwise, we're just going to believe it, get identified with it, and act it out. So here's another. This is from a different book of Ajahn Sumedho, The Mind and the Way. He says, the paradox of it all is that freedom to follow one's impulses and desires doesn't seem to really bring freedom. This is how I see it from my own experience in life. I find I found that while I thought I was free to follow my desires, I, end up, I ended up feeling very confused and enslaved by desire. So how do we practice letting go of desires? Well, the work, because of the depth, the, the sort of slipperiness of this group, the work is really not believing the compulsions, the impulses in the mind. So we're there in our life, in a sit, in walking, in life, as it is. Obviously, desires are going to get triggered. It doesn't matter if we're on retreat, maybe even more so on retreat. We have more sort of space in the mind for all of those desires we haven't thought of for a while to come up, right? Lots of desires that can come up. We're not absorbed into the other activities of our lives. So we just see the force of desire so much. Just the desire for the mind to be quiet, or the desire to get concentrated, the desire for the pain to go away. Or Mike was mentioning in the small group, you know, the desire for lunch. A lot of our teachers, you know, have these funny stories, and this is something we all recognize, where we might be having a really good sit, and then you know the desire for lunch comes up, or the desire for tea comes up, and the mind grasps it. It's like we choose the tension and the constricted state of desire, attachment to desire, over the simplicity of presence. Or another teacher uh, said, I forget, who now? I think it's in Jack Kornfeld's book. I don't think it's his quote. Something like, "We prefer, you know, we prefer the quicksand of somethingness, because that's what desire is. It's like gives us an idea of what will be if we get what we want, or get rid of what we don't want. We prefer the quicksand of somethingness to the sure ground of emptiness, or something like that. And that's the the simplicity of mind." of just letting things move, letting desire move in the mind, letting all emotion, all mental activity move, of course, allowing the body to move, the breath to move, not 
constructing friction in this amazing movement of conditionality, of dependent arising. Everything is moving, everything is moving together interdependently. And is it possible for the mind to just let everything move? And what's that experience? And what's in the way of that experience? So one beautiful expression of this, the Buddha was having a conversation with a dewa, a celestial being, late at night. Evidently, they come and visit the Buddha, beings from other realms of existence. And the Buddha would instruct them as best he could. And one night, uh, Deva said, tell me, dear sir, how you crossed over the flood. Right. So craving is often, uh, the simile for craving is often a flood. And if you think about the Ganges plain where the Buddha taught for most of his time, you know, floods were a real thing. We still hear about them in that part of the world, Bangladesh and places where, you know, villages just get swept away when the water rises. So that's what desire and attachment to desire does. We step into it and then it just keeps regenerating itself, proliferation, endlessly, obsession, obsessing, caught. So it's referred to as a flood. So <clears throat> this celestial being is using that image. Tell me, dear sir, how you crossed over the flood. And the Buddha says, you know, he did say, I had let go of desire. He said, I crossed over the flood without pushing forward and without staying in place. So that sounds a little metaphorical. <laughs> but how did you, so the celestial being, being a serious practitioner, Asked his teacher, but how did you cross over without pushing forward, without staying in place? Yeah, just tell me what to do, right? So I can desire it. <laughs> That's what he wants. It's just like, and this is what we want. Just tell me, what am I doing wrong? Why am I still suffering? I've tried so hard. <laughs> so the Buddha says, when I push forward, I was whirled about. When I stayed in place, I sank. So this is very, very dependent origination-ish, right? Because it's in terms of cause and effect about how things work. I noticed when I pushed forward, I got swirled about. I whirled about. I got lost. And when I decided, okay, I'm not going to push. I'm not going to try to get what I want. That's sort of like asceticism. Yeah, I'm going to stand still, let the world pass by. I sank, right? Or as, uh, you know, the heart, when we sort of take that, it's really the practice of annihilation. When we take that as our spiritual path, our heart dries up. Things get really sterile. That's not, doesn't feel like enlightenment or freedom. So when I pushed forward, I was whirled about. When I stayed in place, I sank. So I crossed over the flood without pushing forward and without staying in place. So that's, uh, it's a, I, I find, a really beautiful uh, invitation for our practice. So there we are in the flood. The river's moving. Desire's moving. Thoughts are moving. Emotion's moving. Sensations are moving. The world around us is moving. There is suffering and joy in, outer, everywhere. It's all moving. And... And the Buddha is telling us, hey, I noticed when I pushed forward, 
when I strived to make something happen, I got swirled about. It wasn't pleasant. When I gave up and stood still, took my stance against the flood, I sank. So don't do those two things. <laughs> and, you know, the image I like is uh, a sense of porousness. And I, I feel that's more than anything, that's what the practice does, especially for those of us who have a lot of discomfort over the years in practice. It, it uh, in a way, this willingness to keep showing up, to feel the body, to feel the messiness, the activity of the mind, it's like a tenderizer. It tenderizes the whole mind-body system. It gets softer, more pliant, more and more porous. And the river of life, the river of desire, the river of sensation, the river of thought, just more and more easily moves through us. We're right there, even more and more sensitive than we ever were. So it's not like we've taken that stance against the world of movement, of desire. It's bad. Or we're for it. Oh, I can't wait until I become something other than what I am right now. So it's really the abandoning of anything outside, you know, any resistance whatsoever to change, to movement. This is how we find our freedom. So I'll just end with uh, one more reading. Let's see which one. Well, I already gave you a copy of Tony Packer's article, Trace of Attachment, so I won't read that. Maybe I'll read another sutta where the Buddha talks about dependent origination. I haven't actually read one of those in the series of talks. So the Buddha talked about dependent origination or dependent co-arising in many, many talks. And not always the same way, not always with the same 12 links, which we commonly hear. Because the point is conditionality, not exactly this leads to that, leads to that, although that's part of it. But the fact that everything is lawfully unfolding. And if we understand that, we get to play with it. We can participate with it. The ending of fermentations. Isn't that a nice word? Because it, you know, fermentations like that, part of desire that leads on, like flood, it just has a life of its own. The ending of fermentations is for one who knows and sees, I tell you, not for one who does not know and see. For one who knows and sees what? Such its form, such its, such, such its origination, such its disappearance, such as feeling, perception, fabrications, consciousness, such its origination, such its disappearance. Right? So basically, he's just talking about mind and body. The ending of the fermentations is for one who knows in this way, sees in this way, right? That body and mind arise and disappear. The knowledge of ending in the presence of, the, of ending has its prerequisite, I tell you. It is not without a prerequisite. And what is its prerequisite? Release. 
Release has a prerequisite, I tell you. Not without a prerequisite. So what's the prerequisite for a release? Dispassion. And for dispassion, disenchantment. Disenchantment has the cause of knowledge and vision of things as they actually are. And that arises out of concentration. And concentration comes from pleasure. Pleasure comes from serenity, serenity from rapture, rapture from joy, joy from faith or conviction. And faith and conviction come out of suffering. We suffer and at some point arises in the mind, it doesn't have to be this way. That's an expression of faith. And then suffering comes out of birth and becoming and clinging, craving, feeling, contact, six sense gates, name and form, consciousness, mental fabrications. And mental fabrications have one cause, which is ignorance. And the Buddha gives this beautiful image then. He says, just as when the gods pour rain and heavy drops and crash thunder on the upper mountains, the water flowing down along the slopes fill the mountains, clefts, rifts, gullies. When the mountain clefts, rifts, and gullies are full, they fill the little ponds. When the little ponds are full, they fill the big lakes, the little rivers, the big rivers. When the big rivers are full, they fill the great ocean. In the same way, and then he goes through this chain again, how fabrications, mental constructions, intentions have ignorance as the prerequisite, consciousness, and then on through the 12 lengths of this existence until one moment of suffering, faith is born in the mind. Oh, it doesn't have to be this way. There's got to be another way. Right? This is, like the Buddha says, suffering either leads us to beat our breasts and lament and to struggle and to suffer even more, or faith arises and the mind says, honey, there's got to be another way than this suffering leading onward to suffering. And then faith, he goes on, of course, let's see, you got to get there. Conviction has stress and suffering as its prerequisite. Joy has conviction as its prerequisite. Rapture has joy as its prerequisite. Serenity, rapture, pleasure has serenity. Concentration has pleasure as its prerequisite. Knowledge and vision of things as they actually are present has concentration as its prerequisite. So the mind is clear, relaxed. When the mind sees things as they are, sees movement, ceaseless movement coming and going, the mind becomes disenchanted with the conditioned realm because it's fluid. It's already beautiful. It doesn't need to grasp. It doesn't, it sees grasping is completely insane. That's the beginning of disenchantment. Disenchantment leads to dispassion, a letting go. The heart lets go of its identification with conditions that are coming and going. Dispassion then leads onward to release. The heart releases its fixation on conditions. Release leads on to the knowledge that the heart has been released. As the great Thai master once said, there are only two things, the heart and the activity of the heart, the unconditioned and the conditioned. Understanding the difference, understanding these two things is all there is. But we don't understand the unconditioned because the mind is fixated, 
trying to get something from the condition because it thinks it can get something. And it thinks it can get something because it isn't seeing things as they actually are, that it's just movement. So I'll leave it here. I'll put aside some time tomorrow for discussion, but maybe it's nice not tonight to let go of the discussion, if that's okay with everybody. So let's just take a few seconds, let go of the words. And with great respect, great devotion, great appreciation, we open to our teacher things just as they are, the way it is now. Thanks for listening, everyone. So we'll have uh, 15 minutes of walking practice. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.